Written records go back about uh, 4,000 years, and from 2000 B.C. to uh, the time of Jesus, it was normal for all of the countries in the world to periodically cancel the debts when they became too large to pay. So you have Sumer, Babylonia, Egypt, other regions, uh, all proclaiming these debt cancellations, and the effect was to make a clean slate so that society would begin all over again. This was easy to do in a society where most debts were owed to the state. It became much harder to do when enterprise and credit passed out of the hands of the state into private hands and into the hands of an oligarchy. And the last thing they wanted was to have a king that would actually cancel the debts and restore equality. Rome was the first country of the world not to cancel the debts. It went to war in Sparta, in Greece, to overthrow the governments and the kings that wanted to cancel the debts. The wars of the first century BC ended up stripping these countries of everything they had. Not only did it strip the temples of gold, it stripped the public buildings, it stripped the economies of their reproductive capacity, it stripped them of their waterworks, it made a desert out of the land. And it said, a debt is a debt. What was absolutely new uh, in the Roman Empire was irreversible concentration of wealth at the top of the economic pyramid. And that's what progress has meant ever since. Progress has me meant you will never get back what we take from you. Uh, that's what brought on the Dark Age, and it's what's threatened to bring in the Dark Age again if society doesn't realize that if it lets the uh, wealth concentrate in the hand of a financial class, this class is not going to be any more intelligent and long-term in disposing of the wealth than uh, its predecessors were in Rome or in uh, other countries. Every society in history for the last 4,000 years has uh, found that the debts grow more rapidly than people can pay. And the problem is a small oligarchy of 10% of the population at the top to whom all of these net debts are owed to. You want to annul the debts to the top 10%. That's what they're not going to do. The oligarchy is running things. They would rather annul the bottom 90% right to live than to annul the money that's due to them. They would rather strip the planet and shrink the population uh, and be paid rather than give up their claims. That's the political fight of the 21st century. Take it away, boss. Take it away. Okay, so um, we're here talking to Jen Lazan from the Debt Collective. Um, and basically, the first question we have is just tell us about yourself um, and, you know, what you do at the Debt Collective and where people can find information about the Debt Collective. 
Absolutely. So um, I guess before I kind of share more about myself, I can highlight what the DAC Collective is. We're basically um, an organization, a grassroots focused, you know, people centered organization that's all about creating a debtor's union. And people are like, well, what's a debtor's union? Like, what's the whole purpose of that? So obviously, when you look at a union in the workplace, um, workers are essentially coming together to defend and fight for their interests against, you know, greedy bosses and owners, right? And similarly, debtors, we're coming together to form a union to defend our interests. We use our collective power to fight for better conditions in our financial lives, um, for a more equitable society, and the idea of cancellation and renegotiation of things like debts, access to publicly funded goods like education, healthcare, housing, um, and anti-racist economic policies, and so much more. Um, so when people hear about the debt, like the debt collective, they often think, oh, student loans, you guys are the ones who are fighting to get our student loans canceled. But it's so much more than that because we look at household debts. So we're looking at credit card debt, medical debt, um, and fighting for policy change that will create more equitable opportunities specifically for people of color, people from the BIPOC community um, when it comes to those debts, because we're often the people who are most negatively impacted by those. Um, and when it comes to the Debt Collective, I am a chapter co-coordinator alongside um, a good friend of mine, Amy Schneider. And I kind of got involved in this because, like I said, I'm, I work in higher ed, um, but I'm also someone who's burdened by student debt. So before I can kind of like highlight why I do what I do, I kind of like to share a bit about my story. Sure, please. Um, if you guys are okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I am a Puerto Rican and Mexican-American, and I was the first in my family to graduate high school um, to graduate college, go on to something like grad school and finish that. And I grew up in poverty um, in a single parent household on the west side of Chicago. If you guys are familiar with Humble Park, that mm-hmm. is where mm-hmm. I grew up. You that is live my in community. Humble Park. Yes. What street yes. did you live on? I lived right by, um, do you know where the flags are? So like Huron, Noble, like those kinds of areas, but right, right by Casa Central. So my my grandparents used to own a building right across from Von Humboldt Elementary mm-hmm. School. Um, and when all the gentrification was going on, they couldn't afford it. And they ended up selling that building, um, unfortunately, for less than what it was. It should have been valued at, but that's common. Um, and they just they had to get out of the community um, because they couldn't afford to live there anymore. Um, so they're up in the northern suburbs now, and then I live out in the west suburbs. Um, but when we look at how I grew up, I grew up in poverty, a single parent household. My mom was a single mom, um, and where I lived and where we grew up was a really you know tough area, and some parts of it still is right. And um, I went to inner city schools in Chicago, and. As you all, because you live in that community, you know that the schools in our communities were and still are some of the most segregated schools with the majority of Black and Latino students. And even today, a lot of the places in those communities that aren't on the north side, but that are on the west side or the south side are very much underfunded and undersupported. And I think that plays into the very systemic issues 
that we see even leading into higher education. So my mom didn't graduate high school because she was pregnant with me at 17. Um, So she had this idea in her head and she truly believed that me pursuing higher ed Mm -hmm. would help break that cycle of trauma and poverty that our family experienced. And she wanted better for me and I didn't want to let her down. Um, And she didn't know much about higher ed. She didn't know that it made more sense to attend something like a community college, but even Now, if I'm being honest, as someone who's worked in the field as an adjunct, even community college costs have risen exponentially and they're becoming so out of reach for a lot of people, especially people like me, Hispanic, Latinx, people in the black community. Um, My mom didn't have savings for college for me. And I think it's important that when we talk about that, we elaborate that it's not for lack of trying, right? This is because we lived paycheck to paycheck Um, She worked as a housekeeper and I even had to start working at 14 to help her to ensure that things like our lights and our heat wouldn't be continuously turned off and that we wouldn't get evicted from our apartments. So we didn't have generational wealth um, and there's no like amount of bootstrapping that we could have done that would have allowed me to save for college. So. Mm -hmm. Right. So debt is um, so student loan debt is basically the only option. Yep. It was the only option. So at 17, I had to leave home and live on my own. And at 18, I ended up taking my younger brother, who's four years younger than me, um, in to live with me because of this continued domestic violence that my mom was suffering at the hands of her then um, boyfriend. And despite all this, I still managed to graduate high school. I graduated a semester early. um, And of course, I had to navigate that whole process of pursuing higher ed on my own. And part of that was taking out student loans to cover the cost. Um, And then when we look at how I got involved with the Debt Collective, it's because the the school that I went to for undergrad, um, I was recruited in high school by for-profit college, the Art Institute. And it's not SAIC. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will get confused because they'll be like, oh, the Art Institute, that's famous. You know, it's connected to the museum. I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's the Illinois Institute of Art, which was a Mm -hmm. for-profit school back then owned by um, Education Management Corporation. Then it was owned and owned by like Dream Center. Um, And I, I was basically kind of sold these lies, these salesy kind of things that like, oh, after graduation, this is how much you're going to earn. And it ended up, you know, they gave me a cut rate education that cost me over a hundred thousand dollars. And then I graduated into the 2008 recession. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I remember those times that we we were also studying then. Yeah. 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 And um, I ended up pursuing grad school thinking that it would offer me better opportunities. Um, And despite graduating top of my class, despite all the hard work that I put in as a woman and someone from the Latinx community as a millennial, my income just hasn't kept up with inflation. And, you know, there's things like racial and gender wage gaps. So here I am often overqualified and underpaid as an adjunct professor. Um, I'm over $170,000 in student debt. And I don't see any relief in sight. And I work three jobs. So I teach in higher ed like you guys. Um, I also freelance as a creative. I'm a graphic designer and an illustrator. And I run an Etsy shop. And then I teach online um, at uh, SNHU. And also I teach online courses through a platform called Skillshare. And then I have two kids. I have two daughters. So I'm fighting for their future and for people like me and from pe- for people in the BIPOC community. And 
my story isn't unique. It's like, that's the thing I've learned as I've done more work with the Doc Collective is that there's so many people just like me and, you know, they work to claw their way out basically out of poverty and they were instead dealt this insurmountable debt. And we're often told that like, we don't do enough. We never did enough. But the reality was we never had enough to start with. So instead of allowing myself to become angry and a victim of my circumstance, I made it a point to channel all of that anger and organize through activism and volunteering with the Debt Collective. And I'm actually part of the Biden Jubilee 100. We are debt strikers and we believe that education is right. We shouldn't have to mortgage out our life to better it. And I don't think anyone else should have to either. You know, no one deserves to be burdened for attempting to better their life. So that's kind of what I do with the Debt Collective. And then I help to organize our chapter and connect with people like you and other individuals who are interested in joining the strike. Um, And then we help and support the national group as well. All right. All right. Um, Is there anything, did you want us to go through our experience with debt, is that something? Yeah, I would love to hear that because I would like when we're done with all of this, if you guys want to come to a chapter meeting, we have (laughs) one later this month and I'd love to invite you out and I can send information later. Sure. Well, well, when we get to it, tell everybody about the chapter meeting. So (laughs) anybody who hears can come along with us. Um, But if we want to go in linear order. Sure, sure. Uh, So yeah, I started studying at a community college and um, so uh, also took out student loans. I got a grant to do it, but took out some student loans and it wasn't much of a problem then because it was pretty affordable where I grew up. And uh, But then I just kept going uh, sort of onward and upward and, and, it, and then it builds up. And uh, and so I, a lot of the things you said I could relate to and, uh, you know, some people call compound interest a miracle because, you know, it just keeps you know keeps cycling growing. back into the principle and growing yes. but it really sort of depends which side you're on um uh, compound interest is is an is an evil thing for a lot of people and so yeah a lot of what you said i could really relate to um 10 years after finishing undergrad now still in grad school um but you know there's a lot of political stuff around it and so i could really relate to to a lot of what you said so, um, yeah, for me, I've got $70,000 worth of debt myself. Um, for me, I, 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 before this uh, interview or discussion, I watched the Intercept video that you guys made. Um, yes. And Astra. one of the guys, yeah, and one of the guys basically, um, no, it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a young lady who was basically saying her choices were to go to college or to join the Army. And basically, that's what it was in my family. You either go to college or you join the army or, you know, you figure it out yourself. Um, And then kind of not to the same degree as the young man who was there. Um, When I was 16, um, I got kicked out of my mom's house. I was living with my brother. Um, And um, during that time, we lived in Humboldt Park. We lived in Pilsen. We lived in over on um, uh, Madison and Monroe. So we lived in a bunch of places. And um, I was, you know, he was generally safe because, you know, he he looks like a cop everywhere he walks around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, me, on the other hand, I was like, um, maybe like, you, you know, like a trouble. kid who was like five, five, um, 
you know, 110 pounds. And I used to get into a lot, a lot of trouble. And I could understand where the other dude was coming from. You just want to go to college to, um, you know, kind of, uh, it's kind of self-preservation. Because for me, not so much self-preservation, but I did get into a root where I was getting, getting into fights a lot and getting into a lot of trouble. And I was starting to get used to it because I grew up in the suburbs first. And, you know, fighting really doesn't have the same consequences it does in the city. But then when I got to the city, um, I started getting used to those consequences. And in my mind, it was like something is changing. So I got to get out of this environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of one of the reasons why I went to college. And um, my first degree was in anthropology. But then I talked to a guy who was an army ranger and he was um, he was a grad student and um, he had done a job for the city um, doing a ZZODesic study. And they owed him $60,000. But because of, like they mentioned, austerity, they said, we can't pay you. And he sued the city. He won his lawsuit. But the kicker was they were going to pay him over 12 years. So that's only $5,000 a year. And he said, I can't, you know, feed my family on $5,000 a year. So I've got to go back to college to become a professor. So now he had to take on more debt. And for me, it was like, oh, you know, oh, shit. Um, this. Uh, anthropology thing isn't really going to work. So I had to get a second degree in architecture, which, you know, has much better job prospects. And, you know, there's other things to go with the story. Like I was in ROTC the whole time to kind of pay off some of the loans. Um, but I'm gonna let uh, Adam go off on his experiences with college and debt. Yeah. So I also have I'm actually not even sure what the number is. I think it's like $168,000 in student debt. Afraid to check? Yeah, I get uh, <laughs> I get uh, emails and stuff from Navy and every so often, and I just... What I, you don't know can't hurt you, right? I don't, uh, I, I don't look at them. I mean, I, I think I calculated at one point the, the monthly interest alone was adding something like $800 or $900 a month to my balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I'd have to spend a thousand dollars a month just to not have made any, you know what I mean? Progress Mm -hmm. on it. Um, yeah. So I went to undergrad. So I came from a, you know, Daniel and I actually grew up in the same town, sort of rural community in Ohio. And, um, you know, my, most of my, most members of my family didn't go to college. My sister went to community college, but dropped out. She later finished. Um, my mother went to, she started college when she was younger, but then had to leave because she came from a pretty dysfunctional family and had to like, her mother had died when she was young. So she moved back home to help out. And my father dropped out of college. He finished college when I was like 11 or something. So he was really the first person to actually get a degree. Um, and for whatever reason, I sort of excelled in school. And so, it's because you're a smart ass. That's true. Yeah, it's because I'm a smart ass. Um, and, I, and I originally went to, so I went to a public university in Ohio. Uh, I was going to be an art teacher. That was that was the plan. Um, and I didn't really like know what I was doing. Like, you know, you're like 17 years old and like, I don't know what the loans, I don't know what any of this shit means. Like, yeah, I was just so used true. to going to school. I just figured it's a local school, like whatever. And 
My mother helped me with stuff. And she, you know, she helped me take out some of the loans. She also, I got some Pell Grants, I think. And she helped also pay various things. Like she helped me with books and stuff, you know. Um, so I didn't have a whole lot of debt from undergrad. I think, I don't even know how much it was, maybe 15 mm-hmm. or 20,000 or something, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like a ton in retrospect. It's grad school. I think like you. shit, but I ended up getting accepted to graduate school and it was a, you know, at a private university, a private liberal arts college. Swanky one too. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Lawrence college. Dumbest <laughs> fucking decision I've ever made in my life. But, um, but you know, I was in my early twenties, uh, and I like came from like poor white trash family. And I thought I want to move to New York and be, make something of myself. You know what I mean? This sort of cultural, like I'm going to be somebody, I'm not going to be a nobody. And you know, and I had everyone around me and, and people who were like, Oh yeah, it's a lot of money at first, but you're going to get a job as a professor. You know mm. what I mean? Like, You'll be able to get it. You'll be able to do the higher and higher ed institutional track, 70 grand a year, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, maybe in like 2006 or whatever, that seemed still sort of reasonable. But then, you know, I finished my degree in 2009, like right as the financial crisis is happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I ended up moving back to Ohio and like kind of just fucking not doing anything for a long time. And I ended up just going, kept going back to school. Mostly so that I could continue to not pay off my loans. <laughs> Honestly, because I couldn't, people do that. I couldn't find a job, yeah. so it's like I guess I'll get well, another no, degree. There are no jobs in the recession, anyways. Right, right. Yeah. And so I ended up doing. And then, so it's crazy because I have this mound of debt. It's like 168k. I think the principal is barely even. Yeah, 100, it's probably 000. nothing. Yeah. I think most, I think almost half of it's it just, is just It's just interest. the damn compound interest, which is like an anchor just crushing it's been, people. It's been building up for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is like, right. when I think about that, it's like so sick and like... Well, we had a no growth recovery to the last recession. It's going to happen again. And yeah. So I just think, the, you know, my, before, we, well, we'll get into it, but there are a lot of politics of debt that I want to mm-hmm. bring up and that's part of it. It keeps oh, yeah. people in place. Um yeah, I mean, it's totally insane, right? And so, I mean, and you hear this all the time and, you know, it's not like a a novel thing to point out, but the reality is that because I have this debt, you know, like the possibility of like ever owning a home seems very slim. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, the possibility of like, I mean, I even like when I was trying to buy a used car recently, Yeah. Um, you know, I ended up paying cash for it saving up and paying cash for it because like I called a bank and they were like, sorry, you're too risky basically right yep. now. Yep. And it wasn't even for that big of a loan. It was a loan for like five grand or something just like to have a, mm-hmm. you know, $150 a month, like car payment yep. or whatever. It's and, Cause your DTI is too high. Your debt yeah. to income. Yeah. 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 Yep. I deal with that too. <laughs> so, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's totally demoralizing. And like, you know, there are moments when you just think, you know, you kind of, for me, I've always oscillated between a kind of like, um, te- like p- just pure terror at the recognition of like, mm-hmm. like it's almost like sublime, you know, like looking at this mm-hmm. impossible me a- mountain and then just like almost just nihilism, like just like a kind of like, mm-hmm. fuck it. What am I going to do at this point? You know? Yeah. And sometimes yeah. that I feel like sometimes that nihilism can make you 
even more reckless because you just think, oh, yeah. who fucking cares? Like it doesn't, nothing matters What's anymore. What's the saying? There's nothing more dangerous than a hopeless man. Yeah, because you know, and then you just think like, who? You know, you you start just making a lot of horrible decisions. You know, from day from to Miller day, Light you know, yeah, to from Bud Light yeah, like to, minus uh, six pack to, <laughs> to whatever. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's important to share your stories, though. It's cathartic. Like that's one of the big institutions of what we do as the Deck Collective is that we tell people to come out of the deck closet, so to speak, yeah. um, and share their stories. And we call them. We do these things called like when we have our protests and our events, a lot of the times we'll have opportunities for people to share their debt story because it's important to kind of like highlight like this is the reality. And like our our tagline, you are not alone, plays off the idea of alone, but also that you're not alone, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot Mm. of us together. And we say that when you own like there's a saying that when you own the bank, like when you owe the bank a hundred thousand dollars the bank owes you but when you own the bank a million dollars you own the bank and we owe the bank one point almost 1.8 trillion dollars right now we have collective power we own the bank so what can we do to like use that right and not feel bad about it anymore i used to feel the same way like i would like hyperventilate when i saw how much my debt was and i made it a point like two years ago to look and figure out my exact totals and i'm like you know what this is my power. I'm not going to let them take it from me anymore. I'm taking it back. So like the idea of nihilism, yes, I get that. But at the same time, I also see it as an opportunity for us to take back our power. Well, another love, love thing, a good fight. What uh, Daniels taught me and we, we read um, before is that um, every debt is another person's asset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have a debt from the, the bank, if you have debt, then that's the bank's asset. Mm-hmm. which means yep. that they're waiting for that future asset to be paid. So if you can collectivize to um, withhold that asset, then, you know, it's, it becomes, you know, kind of a battle at that point. And that's when you guys kind of have to arm yourselves. So it becomes kind of the, the, I guess, um, you know, terrain becomes political. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um because right now, um, people, not by their own choice, are withholding this asset. Mm-hmm. And we're asking the government right now, Joe Biden, to, you know, either pay that asset or destroy that asset. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that becomes like the secondary um, political question. And kind of um, before we get into kind of. Further into the politics, um, just a general question, like, does the debt collective have any political grounding, um, like ideology or theory behind how they approach the debt question? Well, when they look at the debt in general, um, we we know that Biden can cancel it with a stroke of a pen through executive order. And there's a lot of people who argue and say that, like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, how are we going to pay for this? The schools have already been paid. Mm-hmm, yeah. The government is literally making money off of right. us paying the loans. It's just a matter of, like you said, making them disappear. So we don't we're not necessarily like a politically backed organization. Um, we are grassroots. It's a community of people. We're not making backdoor deals, you know, mm-hmm. in D.C. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But we do have a chapter in D.C. and we are literally locally organizing and unionizing together mm-hmm. um, in order to build this up. 
Um, when we look at the debt in general, like when we look at household debts, medical debt, it's like the idea of what we're looking at is that we want to pursue this in a way that is including like militant debtors, like a movement fighting for mass debt abolition. Um, and that's the other thing, too, is we're not asking for like you'll hear the word forgiveness thrown around. We don't think we should be forgiven. We think we don't think these debts need to be forgiven. We don't need to be forgiven for corporations and higher ed making bad decisions and taking advantage of people. We want it canceled. We want debt abolition. Um, and you'll hear Jubilee a lot this week. We've been fighting for a debt Jubilee, right? Um, so we're looking at fighting for mass debt abolition coupled with social programs that will address the problem of mass indebtedness at its source. So including things like higher edu- free higher education, universal health care. Um, the Debt Collective released a book last year called Can't Pay, Won't Pay. If you guys haven't read it, I highly suggest it. Okay. Um, and in that book, um, Astra, who's one of the co-founders, um, she and the group of, you know, the original debt collectors who kind of stemmed from um, the Occupy Wall Street days, yeah, I um, they highlight that. that we're not in debt because we live beyond our means. We're in debt because we're denied the means to live. So we're not in debt because of poor personal choices. We're in debt because of policy failures that basically require collective action and structural solutions. Um, And that's why we're striking. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, there's a lot of politics that go in it. But when we're looking at like how it's grassroots, it's people, people centered. There's no politicians. You know, we have people who support us like Nina Turner, um, uh, like Ilhan Omar, we have all these different people who have showed support. Bernie Sanders, like we were there um, when he was announcing like his free college, college for all, mm-hmm. when he was, you know, in the campaign, a group of individuals from the DAC collective were there with him, um, you know, at the, at the Capitol talking about what it means to have college for all. Um, so like we are connected, but not in the way that you would think some of these other like education kind of groups are. We're very much people centered, people focused. It's grassroots boots on the ground. Okay. Yeah. I didn't figure that, um, you, y'all probably had a backdoor deal sort of pipeline (laughs) with the democratic party, (laughs) but more like wondering whether, there's some um, overlap with the DSA or the Sanders campaign. Oh yeah, absolutely. And- Very progressive centered, you know, ideology when we're looking at what we're doing. We're a hundred. We, we, um, we recently just had a, an event on Wednesday with um, the Poor People's Campaign. Mm. And it's, yeah, we're very much focused on progressive structural movements and changes. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street and I mean, Man, I remember that. That's been a little while ago, but when that happened... It's 10 years ago now. Oh my God, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not getting any younger. <laughs> but uh, So I think when I signed up for the Debt Collective mailing list, there was a... There, or it was How to Organize a Local Chapter, I believe. A, yeah. uh, something from Derek Graber went out, and he was very influential with um, Occupy. But also behind him is the economist sort of behind his thoughts, I think is Michael Hudson. And he's someone who's like dear to all of our hearts, I believe. And uh, (laughs) he says, you know, debts that can't be paid won't be paid. And that's just a matter of fact. If it can't be paid, it won't be paid. And so the miracle of compound interest is is, is an illusion. You can't just count on that being paid. The bottom line is, 
this isn't going to work and it's going to bring down our economy with it. And so I think that this is great, really, because, you know, I'm in I've been in a number of political organizations, uh, left political organizations. And, um, you know, when I'm hearing you talk, it sounds like, um, you know, it's it's the strike as a as a class weapon again Mm -hmm. and debt abolition. It mean, it sounds like. The things you hear people say who are into identity politics, they say we have to be radicalized by our identity, mm-hmm. but it's really connected to a concrete political economic um, problem in a way that, you know, fuses the thought that who you are would make you radical with uh, class. Because, oh, yeah. you know, go to a DSA meeting or something and it's all, you know, it's all well and good, but, you know, they're talking about fixing other people's taillights and stuff. Um, what I think is good about this is, is it, it, it sounds like it's it's returning to what the original, you know, German Social Democratic Party was about. Those working people, they weren't fighting yeah. for other people. They were fighting to improve their own life. And that's a hell of a motivation. Um, so, yeah, the politics of debt cancellation, um, the fact that we're dealing with debt peonage, some kind of neo-feudal serfdom, it's pretty bleak. But mm-hmm. um, uh, this, it's, it's very hope. It's very, how do I say? <sighs> Uh, it's, it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging that, that, um, that an organization such as this exists. Um, some other questions on like, um, so you said that there's no, um, shadow organization behind the debt collective that's <laughs> yeah. lobbying the government, no. but, um, kind of like the counter to that, there are shadow organizations on the other side that are lobbying oh, the yeah. government. So, uh-huh. When we're talking about arming ourselves in a certain political fight and we're using debt as um, the weapon, um, we're using their assets. Basically, I want to keep on reiterating that, mm-hmm. that our, debt, yeah. we should our, our debts that, are yeah. their assets. Um, um, so we're using their assets against them. But kind of what we've seen lately is that the government has a will to pump as much money as possible to secure their assets. So mm-hmm. even if we have 1.8 billion of their assets in our hands, um, they just gave them five billion or five trillion. Sorry, trillion. we have mm-hmm. you know 1.8 trillion of their assets. They just gave them five trillion. So yeah. you know, um, if we're talking about um, more of the economic theory behind um, debt uh, abolition uh, versus like MMT. You know, modern monetary theory, which basically says that it's not actually taxes that pay for things. It's um, the thing you really have to worry about is inflation. So Mm -hmm. you can pay for the thing before the taxes come in and the taxes. Mm -hmm. All that does is it, you know, destroys enough wealth to mitigate inflation. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we're seeing that America has five trillion dollars to fight against, um, you know, the. Uh, deflation of the economy brought on by a pandemic and the insolvency of institutions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, couldn't they easily weather, um, you know, the, the storm of 1.8 trillion of college debt. And if that's the case, it becomes a different equation. You know, you can't just use um, like the strike has to take on more of a militant form at that point. It can't just be localized to just withholding, you know, your, your payments. It has to be a political fight where you are, you know, lobbying just like, you know, um, 
the the, the for-profit schools, you, you're going to have to lobby the government to some extent. You're going to have to get uh, certain people elected because oh, yeah. the fight is beyond. Um, ju- you don't have enough um, of, you know, uh, economic power in order to fight the fight. Yes. Um, but you do have enough economic power to um, arm yourself with with new weapons, with more yeah. means, with more power. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, that, that's the long of that. But, um, like, what is the debt collective? How are they kind of bringing up, um, you know, a new generation of politicians, maybe? Or um, how are they pressuring the candidates that we have uh, right now? If, if that's one of the programs. Yeah, that's a good question. So our big thing when we're looking at militant power, right, is not just striking by withholding, but organizing and protesting. Mm-hmm. So this week um, through tomorrow, we've been organizing basically a week of action. And part of that week of action has been protests nationwide. We had protests starting in California. We've had protests. We had one out here. Um, It was very small because we're still a small group, but, you know, small but mighty. We had protests in New York today. We had protests in Philly and D.C. yesterday. We had protests in Colorado. So we're starting it, like I said, boots on the ground. Um, That's not to say that we're not fighting for specific candidates. Of course, we're connecting with candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I said, Nina Turner was on one of our 100 Strikers, 100 Stories events. We connected with the Poor People's Campaign for our last event. And part of that is coalition building mm-hmm. and um, connecting with organizations that have a, you know more of that political power, quote unquote. Um, but that's not to say that we don't have people who are working in that kind of realm. We have some amazing um, individuals that you know have economics backgrounds and are in D.C. and are part of our union and are you know working to develop our our core goals for what we're trying to do with the movement. Cause it's as much as it's been around for quite a long time, like I said, this kind of stemmed from um, participants at, uh, you know, you know, Occupy Wall Street. Um, we're still relatively new and growing and evolving as we build up each of, you know, the unions and the union in general. Um, but we have made it a point to connect with candidates. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this and I think it's fine, but, um, before Biden was officially elected, we had a sit down call to share what we're doing, what we're doing as, you know, the Deck Collective. And I got to be a part of that call and share my story um, because often, you know, there's this very it's very like like you said, there's like these viewpoints where it's like, oh, uh, student loans are, a you know, a wealthy white person problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm a poor ass, like, you know, Hispanic lady. Like, yeah. like this is my journey. This is my story. Um, And we were able to share that with them. Who's to say, you know, whether or not that's going to impact their decision um, to cancel and do the executive order? We don't know. But that's why we're organizing. That's where we're fighting. We're utilizing media, social media. We're using, you know, protests in person. to basically kind of make a ruckus right now because they're, they're going to have to listen and we're going to keep, you know, being a pain in the ass essentially until something is done. Um, and that's just going to grow the movement because there's more of us than there are mm-hmm. of them when it comes to the collective bargaining power that we have. And it's just a matter of connecting with, you know, the organizations that have more of that political, you know, pool um, and, 
you know, it's because of what we're fighting for, it's not just student debt, it's medical debt, it's credit card debt. Mm -hmm. It's like looking at leveling the the playing field and looking at it from a racial justice perspective um, that I think it's really important with what we're doing and how we're, we're approaching it. Um, but I think that it's important, though, to also remember it's grassroots, it's people. When we look at some of the, the biggest changes that have happened in you know the U.S., it's because of those grassroots movements that were able to grow and evolve and become bigger. And then individuals and leaders were pulled out of that that were able to you know enter into you know maybe politics or something where they could create that long-lasting change Mm -hmm. um we love people like aoc we're we're all about you know looking at systemic change absolutely 100 percent. a lot of us are bernie supporters but you'll find that a lot of the people too that are in the debt collective in general it's not just left-leaning there's a lot of like conservative people too mm-hmm. because it's it crosses party lines student debt impacts people on both sides of the aisle and while we are i feel like it's a, like and this is just me my perspective I'm, i don't want to speak on behalf of the the founders of the debt collective but it feels very left-leaning you know social social justice focused um but there are people um and especially like because i i help moderate a group called i am ai on facebook and um these are all for-profit people who are fighting for the borrower's defense to repayment and who are part of this you know who are also part of the debt collective some of them are some of them aren't um but there's a large group of super conservative people Mm -hmm. um that are that are also like we want our debts canceled too Mm -hmm. so it's just it's really interesting to kind of see the nuances of everything yeah i think that's great but i think it answers your question does it Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i think that's great because the only way you can do uh, so one one thing i wanted to ask you about is class politics because um it seems to me you can only really do class politics that advocate for the whole working class if you have the whole working class and that's going to mean not dicing up the working class along um left-right ideological lines, but, yeah. but putting all of that aside and advocating the material interests of people. And so, yeah. actually, that's quite, in, that's quite encouraging to me um, because, uh, for instance, there, let's say, let's say those conservatives, a lot of them are white. People say yeah. that debt, student loan debt uh, is, a, is a rich white person problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, what if it were a poor white person problem? Yeah. Would it matter exactly. then? I mean, exactly. <laughs> and also, I mean, what's a rich person if, if I mean, you have to balance the, the, the total liabilities with the total assets. I mean, yeah. if you truly don't Truly own- rich people don't, number one, truly rich people often either don't go to school because they, or they don't just, have student loans or they don't have student loans. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. if you're like a legacy admission, mm-hmm. like you're not getting charged, like really nope. like the 1% are not like they're going to Ivy league institutions mm-hmm. and they're getting in because of who they are or they're just not going to school and they're inheriting a bunch of money. And, Zuckerberg and, didn't even finish his. Yeah. Well, yeah. No. Bill Gates didn't finish college. Steve jobs didn't finish college. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like these are not people who ever had debt and, and the other thing is, is you know, if you, if you want to think of debt as being like a, maybe a middle class problem or something, mm-hmm. like okay, yeah, there's a lot of professionals who maybe mm-hmm. make sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year who have a lot of student loan debt, but like, but that's if not the ruling think, class. If you think that they're your enemy, then like you have a very, uh, that is a uh, a very well, then you've bought into a losing ideology is. at that point. Yeah. Am I your enemy? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, if you have, if you've seen on Netflix the um, the Varsity Blues scandal documentary, like 
No, no, no. With the I, uh, with the yes, the college admission it. scandal. You yes. mean? Yeah. I would. Uh huh. I would highly suggest you watch it, and then I'm like, there's just another reason why our our, de- our debts need to be canceled. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Do you have anything else? Well, the other thing is, is uh, just just one final point at that is at the end of the day, like, you know, like the question is sort of like, why do you oppose student debt? You don't oppose student debt because you feel sorry for the people mm-hmm. who have student debt. You oppose student debt and any kind of debt because debt is wrong. It's exploitation and it's wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're like a good person or a bad person or like we like you or we dislike you or there's some cultural thing. Or aesthetic thing. Or aesthetic thing. Right. I don't care. Like if that's happening, then it's still wrong regardless. Well, yeah, that and just a little bit, I would push it a little bit further. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's not just exploitation. It's a regressive form of exploitation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a feudal thing. It's a pre-capitalist yeah. thing, usury yeah. and debt. And yeah. um, and it's a drain on the economy for everyone. If everyone in your yeah. neighborhood's in debt, that means they're not spending money into the local economy. Yep. And that hurts you. And so debt yeah. cancellation isn't just a handout for some people. Yeah. If you, I don't know if, if anybody's read the paper that Stephanie Kelton put out in 2016 um, in connection with the Sanders campaign. Yes. That, she, she was active, but also someone someone said, hey, will you put together a group and do some research on what would happen if there were complete debt cancellation? And she said, basically, there would the, the uh, inflation impact would be minimal, but it would yeah. stimulate the economy massively for all because there's this problem called debt deflation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that yep. means when you're spent, the people who would be spending money into an economy, money which would constitute other people's incomes, um, when they have to pay all of their money to creditors, and that yeah. money is just, it's like vacuumed straight out of the economy, yeah. then you have less money circulating and that hurts everyone. And so, yeah. and so really it's a problem with oligarchy, uh, for the financial ruling class and um, a regressive yeah. form of exploitation. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. this, this stuff makes industrial capitalism look good. Um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> right. you know, like it, it, yearning for the days of Ford, the, the good old days. Like I just <laughs> yeah. want to work on an assembly line. Right. Yeah, we share at, least they, at least they had made enough to buy a car. You know what I mean? Yeah. We share that paper a lot. <laughs> the microeconomics of, you know, student debt cancellation. That's something that we share a lot because we're, it's about information. People don't know mm-hmm. what they don't know and things mm-hmm. like that inform them and we're talking about like the whole regressive idea oftentimes you, you you'll you'll be surprised to find out people will say like isn't canceling student debt itself regressive and like you said student debt by definition itself mm-hmm. is regressive not canceling oh. it is only gonna like keep hurting and there's a stereotype that canceling student debt only helps successful professionals um but the fact is we have this data point that um i think it's like 40 percent of people who have student loans don't actually have a college degree to show right. for it right and that means that like millions of people are burdened with with this debt without reaping the benefits Mm -hmm. that actually come from having completed a degree program. Mm -hmm. And then there's chances that they didn't even finish school because they were probably working Mm -hmm. multiple low wage jobs. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, um, kind of to piggyback on that point, which is that, you know, one, one common, uh, criticism of debt cancellation is that it's unfair to people who have already paid off their loans. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I don't accept that on its face. We but can't I'm, cure cancer either because right. it's unfair. But to, I'm curious as I'm curious if, if, if there is, um, if you have some way of kind of responding to that narrative or reframing that, if that's something you guys have thought about a lot or. Yeah, we get that a lot. Um, but when we talk about that, like, 
like, like usually it's a matter of looking at the greater good, right? Like yeah. I, it's, and that's usually how we look at it. You know, that what about the greater good? Yes. You were able to, you know, pay off your debt. Right. Um, and I like to bring up the idea of privilege in this situation. Like when I, when I talk about my story, um, people, and I've been lucky enough to share my story with like CNBC and Latino oh, wow. USA. And oftentimes you'll get a lot of really mean people trolling you and saying really shitty things about you. I can right? only like imagine. My mom <laughs> saved, yes. Like my mom saved, you know, we, we ate ramen and we did this and I was like, there's privilege associated with that. My mom did not have the privilege to save money. We were poor, right? So the benefit that you had to be able to pay off your debt, that's a, that's, that's a great thing. That's wonderful. And I don't want to, like, you know, minimize mm -hmm. people's experience with that. But there is a privilege that people will not admit to. And it's important to highlight that. Like, the fact that someone is privileged enough to be able to pay off their student, don't, their student loans it, and then you compare, it's like comparing apples and oranges. Like my journey is not the same as yours. If you had the opportunity to be able to save and pay these off within 10 years, wh who helped you? Or mm -hmm. were you living at your parents' house rent-free? I, you know, who was, um, who, you know, what kind of job and who helped you get that job? Like there's all these different things. So like oftentimes when I, I approach that people, it'll, it'll, it creates an argument and people like to fight, but it's just looking at the greater good. And that's what oftentimes the debt collective highlights. Like we have to look at the, you know, there's a good chance they paid a lot less to go to college. So it may have been easier for them to pay down their debt. And then we also talk about how a few generations ago, college often mm -hmm. cost nothing or mm -hmm. very little, but yeah. now that cost keeps rising year after year. And then the other thing we say is that we're sorry that some people have been forced to pay back their debt um, that should have never existed in the first place. Mm -hmm. But we can't halt social progress because it's somehow unfair to people who suffered before us. Instead, the idea is like, let's make sure that this never happens again mm -hmm. um, to anyone else by canceling all of that and then fully funding public higher education in the future so that we don't repeat the cycle. Well, I, th I think all of this is really a red herring. Like when people say, um, you know, it's just a handout for the uh, upper middle class. I mean, yeah. this is all just, a it's like when people say Bernie Sanders, oh, he has a million dollars, so you can't, oh, you call <laughs> yourself a socialist, but you, uh, but you have, you have, I don't know, a car or something. He like. has a vacation cabin. Yeah. So <laughs> this is all a red herring. I mean, and frankly, I do want to just brush these people's experiences aside because that sounds harsh, but hear me out. It's not about individual moral concerns. Yeah. At the end of the day, this is a macroeconomic question. Yes. And what we have to ask is, can our economy work if the spending portion, that's to say the, a large segment of the working class, um, is, is paying out its income to um, financial speculators. I don't just mean student yeah. loans. I mean mortgages. Yeah. I mean everything. Yeah. And the yeah, bottom line is so. no, an economy cannot work that way. And I want to really drive, I want to really, I want to really emphasize this. How does this work in the case of um, student loans? The federal government creates currency. It's from, it's from the federal government, these loans. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some people there's with private, private debt. Yeah. Sure, that sure. Are, there's a big, yeah. big thing with that too. But there's actually they're implementing. Um, I think Ilhan Omar had. I don't remember the specific like 
what the specific you know law she was trying mm. to push through or uh, it, it was it was something that was looking at not just federal debt mm-hmm. but private debt too because that's sure. another big issue people encounter too sure mm-hmm. but the bulk the, a, a large part of this whole issue is the debt owed to the government or directed through the government because yeah. because you know there's no you know when you apply for a student loan there is no assessment it's you're guaranteed that and it's zero mm-hmm. risk for them because um you can't cancel it in bankruptcy and yeah. so, so so what i'm trying to say is when the federal government does this it's not like they have to collect the taxes in order to give you the money no, no. it's simply currency creation yeah and so you get that money and you spend it in the economy and then what do they do they have this iou and what do they do with it that's the credit that's the asset they sell it to someone else so they yeah. get you into debt and then they sell it to someone else yeah. Yeah. so that someone else's asset equals your debt. And yeah. so so when I hear people say that uh, debt cancellation in the case of student loans is just a handout to the upper middle class or the professional managerial class, um, I think what we are doing there is we are allowing the horizon of our perspective to be limited to the individual moral sphere. Like yeah. when people say it wouldn't be fair, when people say... Um, Yada, yada. Bernie Sanders has a summer house. I mean, no, the bottom line is, can you have a functioning economy for working class people with massive amounts of debt deflation, which is just vacuuming the money out into finance, the finance sector? Bottom line is, fire sector, finance, insurance, real estate has complete control over the American economy. And so it seems to me that we need to we need to cancel debts, all debts. I mean, 80 percent of bank operations are mortgage debt creation. So that means 80% of financial assets are someone else's debts. And so we need to cancel those debts in order to destroy that wealth. From my perspective, that is class warfare. If you're serious about, I mean, you consider yourself a socialist, consider yourself a leftist, even just a good, honest, old school Republican. I don't mean the American sense. I mean, the classical sense, you can't have a functioning Republic with a financial oligarchy. It doesn't work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's like, when you look at it to the, there is, there's, I, it's, it's like, I feel like when I look at the history of these repetitive cycles, we look at the mortgage bubble, bubble that bursts, right? The yeah. mortgage bubble bursts. And then I, I honestly feel that like there is, it's almost like the student loan crisis is it's a bubble in of itself. And if something isn't done at some point soon, it's, it's going to get worse and it's going to be, and who is it going to impact? It's going to impact working class individuals, the poor communities, people of color, the, you know, BIPOC communities. And it's, it's an, it's a big issue. It's also a racial justice issue, but this whole thing with COVID and the pandemic, it's like, we also highlight, this is COVID relief. This is an economic stimulus. Canceling all student debt would create millions of new jobs Mm -hmm. at 86 to like $108 billion to the economy every single year for the next decade. And yeah. it's important to like look at that and who are we fighting for? We're fighting for those who are most at need. Like it's I, I personally I'm sick of like I'm sick of seeing my tax dollars. The fact that I pay more in taxes than someone like Amazon and I'm a friggin' adjunct professor and a freelancer making like yeah. less than forty thousand dollars a year. And what yeah. for? Those finance those those federal level taxes are just a sacrifice to the inflation god. Exactly. That money goes nowhere. Yes. And nowhere. we need to understand basic mm-hmm. basic monetary operations. I mean, a thought occurred to me one day. What if every American realized that federal taxation doesn't fund anything? That yeah. all money is printed, as it were. 
and taxes don't pay for anything. I I would stand right up there next to a, a right wing Republican conservative who's interested in uh, advancing the class interests of working people because frankly you don't have to pay taxes. So even more important with the macroeconomics is that you know um, if you're trying to like I guess keep your economy going to stimulate the economy that money mm-hmm. doesn't come from the surplus that is given to capitalists. Right. Yeah. The money that is spent in the economy comes from the workers. So if you give yeah. money, if you pay off the debts of, you know, if you give, um, you know, tax breaks to Amazon, that money just goes into the surplus that they withhold, which yep. means it doesn't go back into the economy. Yeah. So what the government should function as is alleviating the money that goes into the working class, because if you're talking about the macroeconomic level of things, it's 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 spent. That money is the only money that's actually in the economy. That's the only money that's circulating in the economy. The surplus that's owned by a capitalist um, eventually only circulates when it goes back to the worker. Um, So until the government taxes it out of the economy or Mm -hmm. that or spends it into the economy. But I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, we have to get clear on this and um, the sooner we stop thinking about things in individualistic, moralistic terms, yeah. The sooner we can imagine the ma- the macro dynamics, like you're like when you spend money, it's like matter, it's like energy in the physical <laughs> system, right? Mm-hmm. It's it just it moves around, it just changes form. When you spend money, I think some people think that the money's destroyed, like matter is destroyed or something. No, right. w- one right. one person's spending is another person's income, and we have to yeah. get a handle on the macro. Uh, and then, well. Kind it's of very to, spiritual. It's very spiritual. Oh, I'm afraid say. it's also it. <laughs> very mundane because the, what's more this worldly than money? I mean, but also not to. It doesn't have to be opposed to the moral, you know. Sure. Um, sure. I guess spiritual question, but because, that can limit our view. But it can also enhance your view because what is the basis around why? do I want everyone's debts to be canceled? It isn't just because I want my own debts to be canceled. I can, you know, go through some program myself. I can talk to X amount of person. There are ways to pay off these debts and Mm -hmm. all these loopholes that you can go through. You can do that as an individual. But kind of the reason why we collectivize and we do this together is as much for ourselves as us trying to generate a world that's better for the people around us. And I think for me and most people I talk to, most importantly, um, like my nephews, um, other people talk about their children. And there is a moral basis behind why we do things. It's kind of, it's it's very simple to me. Um, You know, unless you're an automaton or a sociopath Mm -hmm. or a politician. Mm -hmm. um, You're going to have some emotion in this in this game that tells you um, I want a better life, Mm -hmm. not like the having more money doesn't equal a better life. Having more money gives me access to the means for a better life. Mm -hmm. So canceling my debt doesn't, you know, just dropping that number inside of the ledger Mm -hmm. doesn't create a better life, but it allows me access to the means Mm -hmm. for a better life or a more enjoyable life. There's this, there's this, but also like, I mean, so helping individuals, that's one thing, but I mean, I do have a normative motivation behind what I'm saying. I'm not saying we should just quit 
being concerned with um, moral issues at all. But, but what I'm saying is I, I want us to have an economy that works, right? Not even works well for working people, not even this more ambitious thing, a capitalist economy that works Mm -hmm. just that works. And it can't work if a significant portion of consumer demand is eaten up by debt deflation. And so, I mean, my long-term goal so speak in normative motivation, my long-term goal would be to have a classless society. And mm-hmm. we can only fight for that if the working class is politically able and ready. Right. But we but we can't do that if we don't have an economy that works at all. Right. If we're in a neo-feudal uh, debt peonage, debt serfdom yeah. situation where you're just paying every month to the Lord, um, I mean, that's a regression from... Capitalism, and so uh, we need a we need an economy that just works, so that we can be ready to go forward with the next fight. You know, a lot of people I talk to, leftists and socialists, they say, "Well, you know, this isn't this isn't really uh, uh, the right kind of demand." But the bottom line is, when people are immiserated, they they can't fight any fight, and so we yeah. have to we have to end we have to end debt in order so that we can fight the other fights. Right. There and seems to be an order of operations here. I, th- I think it yeah. is. I think debt is the order of operations. Sorry. I, I'm going to let everyone else speak after this, <laughs> but um, it's kind of like to me with um, the crisis on the border, me and Daniel were talking last night about people fighting over scraps. And one of the yeah. motivations for people, regular people, working class people to be opposed to, you know, um, I guess a demilitarized border is because they think that they're going to take their jobs, right? They're taking our jabs. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, over scraps. that's valid when all you're offered is scraps and, you know, all they tell you that you that you have to fight over these scraps. Yeah. Right. And as long as people are fighting over scraps, they're going to fight to the best of their ability if that's, you know, the realm that they're in. Yeah. and but if we cancel the debt, I think it alleviates some of that pressure um, around fighting over those scraps. Now you are fighting for progress, right? You've gone yeah. beyond the scraps. You can fight for a little bit more. And that's the immiseration question. So when we're talking yeah. about issues for me um, that are racial and identity issues, yeah. they start with economic issues like debt because I can't rely on the goodwill of people. But I know that a good motivator for people is their money, you know, and if I make their lives easier economically, I know a lot of that psychological pressure will make them more amenable to the social project that I'm after. Yep. Student debt is one driver of the racial wealth gap and canceling that debt can help close that gap. Um, So the Debt Collective shares information um, from the economic uh, economist Marshall Steinbaum, and he's he highlights how the more debt cancellation there is, mm-hmm. the more racial wealth inequality is reduced. Um, and when we're talking about this, it's as much as we don't like identity politics. The reality is is that people of color we are negatively impacted by this, right? So Black women hold the highest level of debt. Um, and because black women are paid 61 cents for every $1 that a white man is paid, it's harder for them to pay off this debt, right? Black borrowers have less intergenerational wealth to draw on. Black students end up graduating, I think on average with $7,400 more debt than white students. And that gap grows over time. So there was um, a study in 2019 that reported 
20 years after starting college, the typical white student only owes about 6% of their cumulative debt or around like $1,000, while the typical black borrower still owes 95% or around like $18,500. And then if we think about fees and interest that accrue over the years and decades, like you guys were talking about earlier, black borrowers and black women in particular end up paying significantly more for the exact same degrees as a white borrower. So, you know, as much as like we, we don't want to make it about race and this and that, the reality is it, it, it kind of is. And we have to be willing to admit that in order to overcome it. And we also talk about how this could be reparations, canceling student debt. You want to help black women. You want to give reparations to the black community. Cancel the fucking debt. Well, racism well, is an economic thing, um, and so it's, it's going to be pretty hard to get around that. I think I think a lot of people want to solve racism without solving mm-hmm. the economic problem because it's cheaper to pay respect yeah. than it is to, yeah. uh, to fix the economic problem. I would honestly say we solved racism without solving the economic problem. For the most part, most of the legal hurdles have been won, and what's left is, is inequality. Inequality, because when mm-hmm. you're talking about like George Floyd, for example, yeah. uh, it, it, the dude Chauvin is on trial right now. He died because of a crime of poverty. He had a yeah. counterfeit $20 bill. They found out the cops come and they kill him. That's a crime of poverty. That's not yeah. a that's not an identity. That's crime, not a black issue. Right. They killed him because he's black because they found a black man committing this crime of poverty. And maybe they had an, a, a dehumanized view of him because yeah. some cultural factors. But for the most part, the genesis of it that we have to correct if we're looking at the root is the crime of poverty. So you're saying yeah. that that's not that's not an essentially that's not essentially a race issue. It's- not essentially. And I'm saying there's a race component and you can solve for that race component but you've only solved for half the you haven't even solved for half the problem in my opinion. Yeah. You've solved for maybe 10% of the problem. You know. Well, let's say at the end of the day we've got a ruling class and a working class which are equally representative and no disproportionality, they're diverse. We still have an inequality problem. And right. Adam, what was that statistic what is the thing that comes up, Walter Man Michaels quotes, where if you if you take out the top one percent, the the wealth gap is basically evenly distributed. How does how does that work? What do you mean? So so there's a disproportionality uh uh with wealth and race, right? But if you if you take out right. if you take out the um A great majority of our inequality is actually inequality but among like the wealthiest However much, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the exact percentage is. But I mean, if you're just looking at the working class, like there's not a lot of wealth disparity between poor whites and poor blacks. As far as like um, real real assets and so right. forth. And okay. And okay, to kind of move forward, um, I'd like to know more because you talked about the debt collective doesn't just talk about student loan debt. It mm-hmm. does housing debt. It does... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. Credit card credit. debt. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you do multiple types of debt and kind of yeah. on, we don't have to go through all of the types of debt, mm-hmm. but some of the, uh, like, I would like to start off with something other than student loan yeah. debt. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of what are some of like your prior, current and future projects that are oriented towards fighting against, you know, different types of debt specifically? Well, when we're looking at our, if you go to our website, one of the biggest things that we have that's often the most used is our um, online tools about disputing your debt, Um, credit card debt, credit collection agencies. We end up helping people with those kinds of things. Um, uh, Some of our national organizers will, you know, 
help people and talk them through how to fill out a debt dispute. Um, and we have a program on our website where you can basically use our tools to dispute your debts, win relief, and basically take back the power from creditors. Mm-hmm. The other thing we're all about is education, whether it's mm-hmm. webinars, trainings, videos, books that we've released, articles that we share, um, and other educational kind of like resources about debt. Um, I actually just pulled this up as we were talking because I think it's really important. I'm going to share it with you all over email. So we have something called the Debt Resistors Operations Manual. Mm, interesting. And we, it's all about, you know, the idea of joining our resistance. That's what we are. So it was written by an anonymous collective of resistors, but I think we kind of know by now it's part of the debt collective. Um, uh, and we, like I said, we started with Occupy Wall Street and before we were debt collective, we were called Strike Debt. Um, and the whole purpose of this manual is to offer specific tactics for understanding and fighting against the debt systems so that we can all reclaim our lives and our communities. So it has like practical information, resources, insider tips for individuals dealing with the like dilemma of being in like, indebtedness um, in the U.S. and also introduces ideas for those who have made the, the decision to like take collective action for organizing like what we're doing here with the debtors union and the Chicago chapter. So I'm going to share that with you guys, but resources, education, um, and these dispute tools are Mm -hmm. a big thing. Um, and then let me pull one other thing up because I have something that kind of highlights some of the more recent, um, things that we've been doing socially that I think will be important. Um, Okay, here it is. Um, So obviously the student debt campaign is the big one, um, but and we're building the organization as a whole. So in the coming year, um, the debt collective, I believe, actually, I don't know if I this isn't public yet. So let's just say that we've been able to get some donations over the year where we're going to continue to build up these tools and these opportunities to help people fight um, housing crisis. Right Mm -hmm. Right now we were a part of an organizing effort um, like in in Texas when there was the issue with Mm -hmm. like the, when the, uh, the, the, after the heating got yes, shut off, yes. everything so, froze. Yeah, the power the heating, grid went down. Yeah, yes, yes, and the bills that were coming from that were we were helping people um, notify people about what was going on, how to fight it, and basically pushing local, you know, local politicians to you know make better decisions when it came to stuff like we, that. We were told by a local politician that it wasn't his job to um help you get power during mm-hmm. an outage that you know you <laughs> wow. should you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps quit blaming other yeah. people yeah, quit there was a texas people. mayor i don't know if you saw that it was online um he quickly uh, resigned after under the pressure yeah. that he got from his yeah. community yeah. well it shouldn't be our job to elect shitty people then and yes i'm glad to hear that um there's also where is it let me see um 
we're fighting for national policy as well. So we have a strong track record um, of influencing actual policy debates. Some of the work that the Duck Collective has done includes research, campaigns to popularize bold ideas through media and public education efforts, um, and of course, like more traditional activities like creating issue briefs and meetings with public officials. Um, and they build the, the member education and leadership development into this process whenever possible so that you know, we have our local members, our grassroots people <clears throat> speaking at things like Senate briefings and being invited guests. Um, they've engaged with state attorneys generals across the country. Um, <clears throat> some of our stories have been shared on the Senate floor. So for here in Illinois, <coughs> excuse me, Bless you. Dick Durbin, um, Senator Dick Durbin shared my story. <coughs> we fight for... Um, Medical and household debt cancellation. So they launched, the debt collective launched in 2012, the Rolling Jubilee Fund, which was basically a mechanism that allowed them to purchase debt mm-hmm. on the secondary debt market oh God. in order to basically erase it. So they launched oh, the project oh, in 2012. Oh, oh. They crowdfunded over $700,000 in order to buy off or buy up and write off more than $32 million of medical tuition, payday loan and probation debt on the secondary market. They also later collaborated with the new economy project to ensure that 120,000 judgment debts that were worth over $800 million were Mm -hmm. forfeited and retired as part of like a legal case against predatory, predatory debt buyers. Um, and then during the 2020 Democratic primary, um, candidate Bernie Sanders, they proposed, you know, canceling all past due medical debt using that mechanism that was almost identical to the rolling jubilee. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're looking at this not just from like the student debt perspective, but multiple kinds of debts. We also um uh, when we look at like compromise and settlement, uh, the DAC Collective's efforts um, make student debt cancellation that central issue that we've been talking about in the 2020 election. Um, and there is a co-founder and legal strategist, Luke Heron, who's part of the DAC Collective. <clears throat> he published some really great research demonstrating the executive branch has the authority to cancel the debt using that compromise and settlement um, opportunity. We also have a service provision and legal mutual aid um, coordinators um, to basically bring people into our movement to help other people. Our online platform um, includes a suite of really groundbreaking dispute tools. Um, and those tools include wage garnishment, tax offsets, chain of title disputes, credit report disputes. And they offer these services free of charge um, to anyone in need. And in many cases, they're able to halt collections, putting money back into people's pockets. And then the biggest one that I'm actually part of um, is the lawsuit that was against Betsy DeVos. And now it's against our newest secretary of education um, to fight on behalf of students who were frauded um, by for-profit schools. Um, it was the Sweets versus DeVos case. Um, and we basically sued the Department of Education for not properly like reviewing and filing and um, putting through our borrower's defense to repayment. And that borrower's defense to repayment rule that Obama implemented was actually developed and built off of tools that the Debt Collective had created. So y'all didn't drop the lawsuit when Trump was gone? 
Nope. <laughs> nope. No. Good. We're still glad suing. To, glad We're still to fighting. Hear, glad to hear that. Glad <laughs> so to hear that. So if you saw in the news like that, was it like a billion dollars that was um, recently, like they said, oh, Biden, he this, this billion dollars is Oh, everything's going to be better. Like, Fine now, yeah. Yes, right? So that was part of us. Um, but those were Corinthian ITT tech students who had already mm-hmm. been waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were basically, you know, finagling these lawsuits and, and these processes mm-hmm. to not give them the relief. Mm-hmm. Um, so he basically just, like, finalized it and okayed it. We'd been fighting for that for years. Um, and now we're in the second process of that for students of other um, for-profit schools like Brown Mackey, the Art Institute, um, some more ITT tech people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they've been kind of basically stringing us along. And we've been working with um, Harvard's predatory lending. Um, they have the, a program for predatory lending. Mm-hmm. And they're they're basically representing us. So we have a team of Harvard legal experts and lawyers Excellent. fighting on our behalf, which is amazing. But it's just taken a long time because I've been in um, I've been in basically they put my loans on forbearance for my loans for the last three years. Um, and then they denied them this summer. But then I got basically the exact same denial that thousands of other people got and that's why we went back to court to say like you were not doing your due diligence you didn't actually read through these things you basically sent us blanket denials and so you know and we got really lucky we had a judge who was um uh, we were all on a zoom call because of pandemic Mm -hmm. and the and the judge allowed 14 of the hundreds of people who were on this zoom call to share their story um, but what I think was like groundbreaking is that a lot of us were chatting in the chat box on Zoom mm-hmm. and they brought up the blanket denial letter and I found it. I sent it to my friend. I was like, copy and paste it in because I'm on, like I was on I wasn't on my computer. And then 10, 20, 30 other people were like, I got that exact same response and they copied and pasted theirs and they pulled the chat into evidence and mm. they allowed our, our case to move forward and they basically reinstated it. Mm. Um, Cause the judge was like, he was blown away. I was like, can you imagine if this was a regular case, we weren't able to share that information that wouldn't have like how wow. different that would have gone. Yeah. So it was amazing. So we're still fighting it though. We haven't gotten final decision yet. Um, so I have another question, but first I want to ask you, um, how does this go? I mean, so you're doing a debt strike I mean, when when those loans go into forbearance, I mean, what do you, how do you, what happens and how do you, I mean, what kind of difficulties do you have to face? I mean, what, what, how does that work? For some people, they take it on head on and legit just don't pay. Um, but we're trying to be really flexible because we understand the economic impact on individuals. Um, so we consider people on strike for a variety of reasons. It could be that they're in forbearance, like what I am with the um, federal loans because they're under investigation. Um, if you're on an income-based repayment plan, which is $0, you are considered on strike because you're not paying. Um, right now, pretty much everybody is on strike because we still haven't had to pay back our loans because of the economic, you know, the stimulus mm-hmm. case and, the, and pr- the president allowing our loans not to be paid during this pandemic. So Mm -hmm. all of the people who are not paying are on that strike. Um, But there are individuals who are willing to take the, you know, the negative repercussions of like, they just stopped paying and 
um, they take what comes with that. Unfortunately, I, I can't fully do that. Um, I'm lucky that before my federal loans were in forbearance, which mm-hmm. while they're under investigation, they're not supposed to be it, like getting interest. That's the, the only positive of this whole thing. Um, it's just crazy. But but you'd be surprised that oftentimes we'll get like notifications and like, oh, you're all of a sudden back in this and your interest is growing again. And we have to call. There's mm-hmm. a special hotline for income based repayment and individuals who are part of the borrower's defense to repayment. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to call them like, listen, my this these loans are in a case right now. They're not supposed to be accruing interest. Mm-hmm. You need to fix this. So mm-hmm. that happened on more than one occasion over the last three years. Um, but for me, I'm really lucky. Like I said, I was in income-based repayment at a $0 payment for my federal loans. Um, but I still do have private loans and I have two kids and I have to, you know, pay my rent and my bills and I can't completely, you know, ignore those stupid private loans. So Mm -hmm. I still pay on those, but I am Mm -hmm. on strike for my federal loans and the debt collective is fine with that. They're like, yes, that is where like they're very open to how you can approach striking Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't necessarily negatively impact you. But there are some people who are willing to do that because either a they're they have the means to or b like they just have no choice. They can't pay. And then if my my loans ever come back with federal, like I have no fucking clue what I'm going to do. I can't I can't afford it. I cannot 100 percent. Like I cannot afford it. And when I was able to talk to the Biden team during that transition, that's what I told them. I was like. You will not get a dime for me because I cannot afford to pay the equivalent of a huge ass McMansion mortgaged house in my student loans. And I can't live in my head. So it's not okay, Mm -hmm. and it's not fair. And I know nothing in life is ever fair, but it's not Mm -hmm. just. And I won't I won't. I won't. And, yeah, they, well, you know, it's a bunch of white people looking at me like I was crazy, but. Well, it's a bunch of rich people. And the, <laughs> yes. the hardest thing for a rich person to understand is, is the following fact. Um, if it can't happen, it won't happen, even if they yeah. want it to. Mm-hmm. It's like the Greek, yeah. it's like Greece. What yeah. happened with Greece in the EU? The yeah. Germans couldn't get it through their head that the Greeks can't really pay. They, they can't. And mm-hmm. you it's get impossible. this sadistic. Yeah psychology of the creditor i mean a rational creditor realizes you know there is such a thing as bankruptcy when you can't get it it's just not going to work you're going to drag the whole economy down in flames but i mean well it just can't when it can't happen it can't happen and they have the they have the expectation of liquidating your assets i mean that's what we're doing in puerto rico what assets right right but what assets do do most working americans have i mean i ask this right nothing less than nothing it's not about the individual working american who can't pay net worth is is i mean let's say you got a house and a nice job but you got student loans and a mortgage your net worth is still negative and mm-hmm. so, I mean, they, all they can take from you is what they already own anyways. And, and they can, they can some, find more debt. So uh, it just seems to me like, um, you know, there's a, there's a comparison to be drawn here. Uh, like, what is, I can't remember how it goes. So prison labor, you get thrown in prison, they put you to work, they pay you nothing, it's free labor. What is, is it in the 13th Amendment or the 14th where people who are imprisoned, so slavery yeah, is out just, unless you're imprisoned. And then you can basically be used as a... Uh, as a slave to do free labor for contracted companies who get that sort of advantage. Well, it seems similar here. Like, Hey kids, it's almost like military recruitment. Want to go to college? <laughs> and then like, Oh, don't know how to pay for it. Ah, don't worry about it. We'll give you a federal loan. We won't even do a credit check guaranteed. Just put your fingers in this mint meat grinder. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then they take, 
then they give you the cash, which you go spend, and then it circulates around the yeah. economy a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. then they have this credit that you have to pay back, and they sell it to someone. Yeah. Because of the promise that they'll get interest in the future. Yeah. And, and or they'll it, tell you that you should go into the army and and risk your life just to be able to pay for education. And mm-hmm. I think it's ridiculous considering education, up until what the seventies and eighties was essentially, mm-hmm. you know, free a free public well, like, good, and like that's what Europe. we need to go back. To, mm-hmm. like what it is in Europe. Yeah. I would rather my taxes go to cover cost of higher education and taking care of the working class communities than to corporate, you know, mm-hmm. to corporate BS. And that's what we need to get back to. And that's the other part of our fight. It's not just canceling student debt, but fighting for college for all, fighting for Medicare for all. Um, And then speaking of um, jail, we actually have um, in 2021 coming up two more online tools that we're going to be offering individuals. So an eviction defense tool, because it's been a huge issue in the pandemic, and then a bail and immigration bond dispute tool. Mm, Nice. Yeah, because there are there are a lot of fronts to that fight. I imagine it's not just wage garnishment and uh, credit scores and difficulties getting apartments when people can't pay or decide not to. There's a, there are a lot of the the mm-hmm. politics of debt is um, battle with many front a war with many fronts. Um, well, there's a lot more debt now too because everything is mm-hmm. rent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know now I have a debt to my cell phone company that mm-hmm. I have to pay off every month. I have a debt to mm-hmm. uh, Microsoft in mm-hmm. order to use their suite, Netflix, you know, Spotify. Yeah, it's so. all it's all rent. I mean, there's no more industrial capital um, in this country. It seems every day it's more, more and more forms of rent. Yeah, so, I mean, you can like get a subscription to like your toothbrush. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, you can no, like, what's whip. That? Yeah. What's that? No, no. It's like a fucking toothbrush. It's like basically like, like a, Dollar Shave Club. You, you subscribe and they send you new shit every so month, three months, because you need to be reminded in order to buy a new toothbrush. You mm. know, like, you know, you're supposed to change your toothbrush out every so mm. often. It's like, no, no, no. Wait, no, you're supposed to change your toothbrush? What do you mean? <laughs> oh. That was a joke. Well, you fucking looked at me like it wasn't. Um, but you know what I mean? So like they're swooping in and it's just like, we'll take care yeah. of that for you. Or the mail order vegetables or the, what is the other thing? Um, I mean, all of it is, all of it's like this. Um, you no longer buy textbooks. You subscribe to them online. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You no order, you no longer buy textbooks even. Um, it's uh, you rent them and then you give them back. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, they're digital. They're not even hardcover books. Oh, wow. A lot of di- textbooks are now digital. You rent them for like a hundred dollars a semester mm-hmm. and it has a code, you mm-hmm. know, they've written into the code that the, and the code expires after the semester is over. Mm-hmm. So, so then you can't. Gone. Yeah. No, what you do is one person buys the book, somebody cracks the book and then you uh, give it to each other. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. share That's the PDF. You, yeah. yeah. I bought books for one semester for anyone who's in college and then I never bought a book again because because we all learned how to find them. I don't. Through, I don't make my torrents. students buy any books. No, me neither. I. I just. Or, <laughs> I just. I, I steal the books myself, and, and I send them the PDFs. PDF. Yeah, exactly. Funny story. Um, there used to be a policy that you could buy a book in the bookstore at Southern, and then you have forty-eight hours to oh, return yeah. it, scan it. Oh, so yeah. I used to buy the book, go straight to the library, read the book take my notes scan bring it, it right back not scan it no i would oh, just read the oh, book in a I day see, I see, I see. classic yeah. um and then bring it back and i remember every time 
uh, the woman who worked at the counter would just smile at me. Like mm. we both, <laughs> we both well, understand great, though. There's what's camaraderie. Going on. You're in it together. <laughs> yeah. And not the sort yeah. of petty, yeah. resentful. What you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> that's good to you. That's good. Uh, solidarity. But um, yeah, I think all these things, patents, intellectual property rights, uh, rents, these all hang together with a debt economy. And uh, it's, it's even antithetical to good old, People talk about the old days, the good old days in America, some mm-hmm. people. That was when we had industry. But um, I think the leftists, socialists, whoever, you know, considers themselves uh, progressive, we need to really let it sink in that the economy's changed and it's not going to mm-hmm. work if if yeah. if we have this. What is There's a quote by Keynes, I believe. He says, he says, um, so when, when, when um, credit and debt speculation is a bubble on a stream of enterprise, this will be okay. But when enterprise and the economy become a bubble on a stream of debt and speculation, mm-hmm. it's all going to go wrong. And I think that's that's the situation we're sort of sort of in. Like we're a credit sector with an economy, not an economy with a credit sector. And so yeah. the politics have to change. So I'm so I'm incredibly. Uh, uh, um, what is the word you used? I, it's blanking on me. I've repressed it. Encouraged. I'm encouraged by the um, fact that there is such a thing as the, the debt collective. Um, why don't you tell us? Maybe we're coming to the, coming to the end about anything that's coming up and how people can get involved, and um, maybe your sort of closing reflections. Yeah, sure. So. Obviously, if people are in Illinois, um, they don't even have to be in the Chicagoland area because right now we're doing everything over Zoom just for safety precautions. They're more than welcome to come to any of our upcoming meetings. Um, Let me pull it up. The next meeting we have, I believe, is the 20th. I should have been prepared. Sorry, guys. It's okay. We'll put the link in the notes um, just just to give a heads up. Yeah. Um, let me see. I think I can pull up the calendar really quick. Um, so our next meeting is uh, on April 13th at 7 p.m. And it's going to be on Zoom. So I can share the link with you all. So that's like the best, most direct way to start organizing with us hmm. locally. Um, basically, those meetings are just sharing updates from the national chapter, what's been going on, what we're doing, any specific like digital things that people can participate like emailing an editor or emailing your local representative which is the big thing that we've been doing um this week we have been um like i said in a week of action and i believe our last event is tomorrow uh sunday april 4th um and We've had, like I said, actions all over local, in-person actions all over the country. Um, But we also have online events coming up. And I'll be sure to share some of the national um, links with you all. Um, I don't like I can't. It's like a there's a calendar that you can go through with Mm -hmm. upcoming events Um, online already. We had on Wednesday our 100 strikers or 100 stories, 100 strikers event. Basically, we've been sharing the 100 strikers that are part of our current movement, their stories in these um, Facebook live events with other political organizations, nonprofits, things like that. We had um, 
Dr. Reverend Theo Harris of the Poor People's Campaign on our call and and at that event on Wednesday, and that's live on our Facebook page. On um, it's just you look up Deck Collective on Facebook, and you'll be able to find it. And we're looking at you know going into May Day if something isn't done, probably another larger political action mm-hmm. um, or rally and protest. Um, because we've already hit the 50-day mark and Biden hasn't canceled student debt. We're, mm-hmm. We've been right. looking at this from the his first 100 days. Mm-hmm. We've given him mm-hmm. that deadline to do something. And we're, we're steadily reaching that point. Um, so we'll likely have something bigger planned at that point if student debt isn't canceled within the first 100 days. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. This was super informative. Very interesting discussion, yes. And um, in a way, I feel like, uh, politically speaking, closer to home than many of the things we talk to. So this is very exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Yes, I'm so excited to have any of you all join us at a meeting in the future if you'd like to. And I'm so appreciative that you all, you know, called us on and, um, you know, let us share what we're doing and the good work that we're doing and what we're fighting for. Because you'd be surprised. There's a lot of angry people out there that don't like what we're doing. And it's great and refreshing to have people who are supportive and who want to, you know, be a part of it. Yeah. All right. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Take care. You you too. too. Have a good one. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Bye-bye.